Before we get started today, here's a few words from Arch Getty, one of the preeminent historians of Stalinism. There are many podcasts that review new books and many more about Russia or Asia in general, but none of them do it all in a comprehensive, in-depth way as Eurasia Not does. Sean Gillery takes an important book or an incident or a document and dives deeply into it, fleshing it out as a historian while maintaining an entertaining, relaxed style. You can strike a blow today against the superficial and the boring. You can put your money where your brain is. So take a moment to become a monthly supporter by going to patreon.com slash urinot. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T. I did. It's money well spent. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As I said last episode, Rusana won't be with us for the next several episodes. She's been working on some stories uh, and will return soon. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And as Arch said at the top of this episode, Put your money where your brain is and consider becoming a patron of the Eurasian Knot at patreon.com slash Euronaut or go to Euronaut.org. I'm not going to say more today about trying to get you to become a patron. I think Arch put it quite well and quite succinctly. I hope his words uh, inspire you. So just to jump right into things. So this is the second episode of a series called Religion in Post-Socialist Societies that was organized in the spring as part of a Reese interview series at the University of Pittsburgh and in cooperation with Susanna Bogomil, who is at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. Uh, I'm here with Susanna Bogomil to introduce our second interview with Anka Sikan and Tatiana Vagramenko. Uh, they study a really interesting thing. I, I'm really interested in archives, and they look at police archives as depositories of religiosity. So basically how these records can give us some insight into how people practice their religion, what they believed, and of course, because they're police records, the persecution of religious believers. So, um, Zuzana, talk a bit about the importance of police archives in this interview of our understanding religiosity. So, in our first interview, we wanted to discuss lived religion, so how it is lived by people. And here, we wanted to see another side of the coin. It means how the, the, the regime uh, constructed religion and what he understood through religion. And I think it is very interesting because in this interview, uh, our guests uh, give us a lot of ethnographic materials, discuss particular pictures, so we can see how this fight against religion and how the, 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 the communists tried to combat religion and construct them in these archives. So I think it is, it is uh, in my opinion, it's very good to listen these two episodes together to have, you know, two perspectives, yeah? What people feel, how they try to be religious and 
how in the same time the socialist uh, uh, regime tried to construct this religion and fight this religion. Well, thank you, Susanna. Well, we have two guests today, Anna Shinkan and Tatiana Vagramenko. Anka Shinkan is a researcher at the Georgi Shinkai Institute for the Social Sciences and Humanities at the Romanian Academy of Sciences. And she was a postdoctoral researcher on the project, which we talk about in this interview, called Religious Minorities, Hidden Galleries in the Secret Police Archives in Central and Eastern Europe. That was, state, that was hosted by the University of College Cork. And now she's a researcher on a project called Negotiating Sovereignty, Challenges of Secularism and Nation Building in Central Eastern Europe since 1780 at the Research Center for Humanities in Budapest, Hungary. And her most Recent publications include a co-edited journal issue, Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, The Religious Underground in the 20th Century East Central Europe, in review of ecumenical studies, and the article, Do Unto Yourself, Leading the Church in the 1970s Romania Through Self-Policing and Self-Censorship, which was published in the journal East Central Europe. Tatiana Vagramenka is a social anthropologist and a religious studies scholar, and she is the principal investigator on the project History Declassified, the KGB and the Religious Underground in Soviet Ukraine, which is hosted at the University of College Cork. And this project is the first in-depth study looking at secret police records and the state's persecution of religious minorities in Ukraine and the Soviet Union at large. So here is Anka Shinkan and Tatiana Vagramenko. So um, I, I like to ask people why they got into what they got into, why they study what they study. And both of you work on religion in communist societies. You know, Anka, your focus is on U Romania and Tatiana on Ukraine and, and the Russian Arctic regions. I'm curious, and let's start with you, Anka. How did you get interested in religious life and practice? So hello, Sean. Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, talk. Um, it's, it appears to be a fascinating one. So let's keep it that way. Um, how I got involved into this, it was a long time ago in 1998. I was uh, in my second year BA and I was majoring in history with a minor in English language. And my professor uh, of medieval studies asked me uh, whether I want to do a research uh, a, a, a bit different than the others uh, on historiography of the Greek Catholic Church during communism. The Greek Catholic Church during communism uh, doesn't exist anymore uh, legally. It's an illegal church. It doesn't have uh, the permission to write its own history. And its history was written by someone else. And uh, my professor, Pompilio Todor, said, uh, because you, ha you come from a um, church family, my father was a priest, um, he said, I think you can pull it off, uh, mainly because you don't need access to archives. We didn't have uh, access to um, secret police archives uh, at that time, uh, or it was very difficult to get into. So that's where I started uh, from, and I managed to um, 
work around access to archives until I, I got to Budapest, uh, to the Central European University, where I did an MA and they said, uh, we'll allow you here, uh, but for your thesis, you really need access or you need to, to think of something else. So um, my real work in the archives of the secret police started in 2002. And that's basically it's 21 years. Since, since your father, you know, and I, I, I like this, the, what your personal connection is to this subject. Since your father was a priest, did, do you, does that also fit into your interests in some way? Is there something you're trying to kind of, you know, uncover with that connection or in, are you inspired by it? I was at the beginning. Um, my father being a priest meant we ha I had first-hand experience in the 1980s on what it was to be um, performing a practicing religion in, um, in the last year of the communist regime. So, uh, but I never thought of it as something weird. <laughs> um, it was just natural for me, it was my, uh, it was, um, but for many of my colleagues and for many of my professor, it was, I, I was um, that awkward person <laughs> that was uh, something different from the other students. But also it, in, in the 1990s, there's a renewed interest in researching religion, mostly because it's not done in the 80s and it's something new and everybody thought, okay, we'll bring something new to the table. And that's, that meant a lot of people went into researching um, religion, not necessarily during communism, but religion per se. And how about you, Tatiana? How did you get interested in studying religion? Well, first of all, thanks, Sean, for inviting me today. It's really a pleasure to be, to be part of this program. That's a funny thing and an interesting that my path to the same archives was very different and I came from very secularized family and religion was a kind of exotic thing for me as a kind of Soviet-based family that didn't never went to church and I'm trained as anthropologist therefore all everything begins with little adventures and I was interested in I went to do my first first MA and then PhD in the Russian Arctic and I was interested in indigenous people studying shamanism nomadism and that's kind of my interest in religion started with a failure, basically, when I arrived to find a shaman, at least a single shaman in the Arctic, and I didn't find any. But instead, I found like a nearly every second tomb, this is a kind of nomadic tent where the indigenous people lived. I found like missionaries from all over the world at the end of the, uh, the, the, end of the earth, like the Yamal Peninsula, where I did my first, uh, my, my field work for my PhD. I encountered missionaries from Cameroon, from Southern Korea, from all over Europe, Canada, US, and that was the beginning of my interest, like what is going on here? Why there is a kind of thriving missionary uh, initiatives in post-Soviet Russia? And then kind of the focus turned to Ukraine, because as more I was studying the Soviet era and post-Soviet uh, religious revival, the more I learned that Ukraine was actually a hotbed of religion, of many multiple religious uh, movements and groups. Let's say only evangelical Christians, there were half of evangelical Christians of entire Soviet Union, of Soviet Union located only in Ukraine. So, and 
regardless of repressions, Sabotera repressions and persecutions, they were there they were and still are villages in Ukraine that comprise like ninety percent of, for example, Jehovah Witnesses, or seventy percent comprised the inhabitants of this village of Pente of Pentecostals who were who count their history for for a century already. So that was kind of the beginning that was I wanted to ask to answer the question why what's going on. You know, I, I know this from the imperial period. A lot of um, smaller religious groups and sects they they often you know find them in the periphery, right? To to escape persecution of the imperial state, they go to the Caucasus, the Far East. Is is the concentration of of say evangelicals or even Jehovah's Witnesses in Ukraine? Is that also part of a, like a is that considered? A peripheral place to try to, you know, live and in, in away from the eye of the state, or what, why do why does Ukraine have that concentration? It's difficult to answer, but I'd say it's not an escape. It wasn't an escape scenario. It was just uh, some religious communities thriving for centuries there, like before the Soviet Union. Of course, there are some of these even during the late, like they were in the entire Russian Empire period, the religious minorities were repressed. But they, that was a concentration of everything, Orthodox communities, Protestant communities, as well as in kind of indigenous Ukrainian forms of what is kind of called Protestants, evangelical Christian, Christians. So is just but i don't think this is a an, an escape way just to hide from the from the center uh, so you both have participated in this project creative agency and religious minorities hidden galleries and secret police archives in central and eastern europe uh, anka what what were the aims of this project um <clears throat> our um director james capolo dr james capolo from uh, university college cork had an idea <laughs> Um, he said, let's look at these archives in, in a different way. Um, not as you historians have done uh, for this 30 years or 20 years. Um, let's, let's look at the objects that you can find in the archives. Um, religious objects that you can find in the archives. And these are religious objects that have been taken by the secret, uh, secret police. Um, creative things that the religious community um, have expressed um, their religious affiliation uh, through or um, iconography or uh, photography um, and all these objects uh, let's let's look at the community via these uh, through these uh, through these objects and um, see the archives in a in a different way let's do an ethnographic work of the archive and to be honest for me as a historian that was pushing the boundaries really really heavy um, and um, these objects of these religious communities these clandestine religious communities we then took them and um, with the files surrounding them and um, went into the communities where these objects were taken from and discussed with the community the, rele the relevance of these objects uh, that we found in the archives. And then narrate we've narrated the story of the object that we found and we put it 
um, these essays, we, we uploaded them in a database called hiddengalleries.eu. If you want, you can browse them. There are a hundred and something stories about these uh, objects that we found in the archives and some uh, in some of the stories, the reactions of the communities to uh, our bringing them uh, the archive, bringing the archives to them, uh, bringing the stories to them. Um, and it was a very interesting um, pluridisciplinary exercise uh, that united historians with anthropologists. It's not always smooth sailing. Uh, to, to bring these two uh, disciplines together. Uh, we look at the archives in completely different ways. Um, we look at um, religion in different ways. Um, our tendency, the historians, was to, to look at it as an institution, to look at how it was organized and to, to see the mechanism and how it works. Um, the anthropologist always looked at the story behind the the small story the weird thing that you can you can collect from this archive um and it was it, i think it in the end it became a very interesting marriage of of disciplines uh, it's not just historians and anthropologists it's also ethnographers and religious studies experts so it's a, it's a, it benefits from, from um, the eye of many specialists. Um, and mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let's, let's bring Tatiana in here because you are our resident anthropologist. <laughs> and and I, I can see, you know, I, I, what Anka's saying about historians and, and you know, some of, some of us do material culture and stuff, but we definitely come from these things from a different place. And so what about your reflection on this project and, and your role and what you kind of, you know, saw these material objects and other things that were in these archives? It was indeed challenging because, well, yeah, as an anthropologist, of course, I understand that that should be my fieldwork, but an archive as a fieldwork and your informants actually who are already dead and you don't need to transcribe the interviews because already, everything was already written. That's That was a challenge, but I really... Uh, that was so fascinating that my follow-up project now, basically I'm trying to continue to develop this approach, not to write a conventional history, which actually I can't because I'm not a historian, but to make this kind of thick description of KGB files that includes also archivists. I was talking and interviewing archivists. I was checking what is the box they bring to me, what is actually comprised the file. And more important to me, that was kind of more fascinating to me, was this the trying to reconstruct life stories. This what's called file stories, that's pieces of some personal life scattered all over files to reconstruct some context, voices, emotions, motivations, some intentions that lie behind these stories. And uh, that was the most challenging, but at the same time, the most rewarding, because it sometimes takes you months to read one, for example, one file, uh, like a couple of, couple of volumes of a file. And then you basically try to reconstruct all this, because we are talking about very, very heavily edited documents, but at the same time, you still can kind of take out, filter some voices of people. And then you, as a puzzle, you try to put it as a, uh, as a picture. And in the end, it's rewarding because you see life behind this, this, this wooden language. And 
is about the the hidden galleries approach of check, concentrating on images, for example. There's all these shiny things in the archives that you are looking for, not only text, boring text, but some kind of images, like confiscated material, for example, an icon, or a love letter, or a, or a confiscated uh, photograph. That's that's we try to, I mean, they, these material collected, they are kept there as incriminated evidence of persecution of, of religious believers. But now, nowadays, with our approach, they acquire a different agency. Now the evidence, but for the persecution against the dictatorial regime. And then we, as Anka mentioned, we try to compare it with these counter voices, with the history that, that those same religious community preserved, and to, to face them and to see what's going on. And there is lo there were lots of interesting detective stories and love stories that engaged in this, in this encounter of files and lives. Was, was there a component? I mean, it's interesting to me that you, you get these objects from the archive and then you go to the communities. Is there an, is there a, an element of, of kind of um, restitution or reparation and, and kind in bringing and or like, like bringing the memory together uh, by bringing these objects back to the community and getting their reflections on them? Um, either of you can, can answer first. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's a hot topic if you want uh, right now in, I'm not, I'm not going to say the world, but definitely Europe, um, this restitution um, from archives, museums, and so on. But, in in our case, when we started the project, we started with this idea that we have to give back. Um, some some sort of story needs to go back to the community, but also we wanted to give uh, something palpable, at least some help. And um, we teamed up with some NGOs uh, in these countries: Moldova, Romania, um, Hungary. Uh, we we've teamed up with. Uh, these NGOs in order um, for them to help them legally to get access to what is in the um, file. But most, most things, most discussions that we had with the community went along with um, what we call the right to forget. Um, the right to forget is... Uh, it's a nice way to say uh, if I don't like my story in this archive because it's a personal story and it has to do with private life, sometimes real, <laughs> very, very awkward private life stories. Uh, can it be stricken from the archives? And a lot of uh, a lot of our discussions with uh, at, at least from my discussions with the community went along this. Um, do you want this story to be preserved in the archives? Um, uh, how much control should you have on what it says about your life or your um, community's um, life? And um, these, uh, this, these are very tricky legal issues that uh, are very difficult to, um, to resolve. And... Um, I think um, we have a legal framework in the Secret Police Archives that does not allow. So this, the Secret Police Archives owns these things, 
but there's also a human element in the archives so all these at least in the in the Romanian case um the administrators the archivists in the in these uh, secret police archives were uh, extremely helpful in copying things for these communities that could not access their uh, their files because you can access the files of the secret police legally only if you're a researcher or if they concern you specifically but what if it concerns your community you cannot access them unless you're a researcher so the whole story only a researcher can see so these guys from the archives uh, were very helpful um, and gave us the whole document and gave us the possibility of going into these communities and offering their roundup story of the archive from you, you know tatiana I, I you know this idea that the uh the researcher has such a you know key position of power here in this relationship between the archive and the community I would imagine that a lot of your anthropological bells start ringing <laughs> with this kind of situation. Um, can you comment on this, like the role of the researcher as the mediator between these communities and some of the issues that come up with that? Well, sure. Of course, I guess I, I do. I, I was doing research, field, field work uh, with communities. I basically I found uh, in the archives and that's it kind of maybe a little bit is another side of the same story that Anka said, that those communities were extremely interested to know what's in those in those archives, the, to the point that they basically asked me to help them, but to the point that they managed one community, one believer in, in one community, uh, managed to steal the entire collection that that belong the, the, the entire collection of. The, basically that belonged to this religious community in the 90s when there was a chaos institutional the bribes and everything it was probably not easy but it was possible and then he showed to me this entire collection about that related the history to the history of his community and he was saying that belongs to us that's our history even that history those documents were created by the organization that intended to control or wipe out wiped out this the entire community so and then again, some of the communities already did a lot of archival research. And when I start working with them, basically the legality, the legality they mention is much more relaxed in Ukraine because they are, the, the archives are fully open and there is not that many restrictions. So we end up exchanging archives with, with each other. So they showed to me, but their research is extremely valuable because they always find, try to find people who were in those, in those documents they found and interview them and collect some oral histories and basically give me this priceless material. Well, already everything ready. And they ask me for exchange of something they're missing because of course I'm as a more trained researcher, I am easier to for me, it's easier to find documents. So that's a kind of co-working together. It's collaboration with with uh, with them and helping them to come to terms with this past. Because in many cases, like most of the cases, they were interested in who were spying, who were collaborating in our community. And I would say there was not a single, even tiny, small community in Ukraine where there was not uh, a KGB agent. 
Um, you know, working in police archives is kind of, you know, it really gives you this. And, and it, Tatiana, I'd like to hear you as, a, you know, you said as an anthropologist, you're going, you're going in and you're kind of doing an ethnography of the archive itself. Uh, which I'm sure has all sorts of fascinating details. But, you know, we kind of, as researchers, we, we kind of fetishize police archives. And, and when we first entering, enter them, we're entering, we feel like we're entering a secret world to some extent. We're being exposed to secret information that, you know, nobody, no outsider has seen. Uh, Tatiana, what was your first experience like when you entered these archives for the first time? Of course, that was a fascinating experience. Uh, you basically you enter a hidden world and for example sometimes uh, an archivist brought me some files that I knew that nobody saw it before so I'm, I was the first one just opening in this completely hidden forgotten history and God knows what's in there more than that is after interviewing uh, several archivists um, I knew that there is the many boxes of documents that nobody's no, nobody knows what's in there, particularly the boxes with incriminating evidence for us would be the most interesting. What is in there? Maybe there is some photographs, maybe there is some uh, religious art or whatever. And, and there is no even lifetime of the whole institution in order to process, to digitize it, even to classify it, like to, 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 to order and to see what's in there. And of course, that was a fascinating thing. But at the same time, once you start reading files, once you start reading penal files, you see that like, it's all false, it's all like fraud. The documents were made not to record something, not, not to record the truth, not to record the history. The documents were made in order to forge, in order to, to fit someone's life into a box, into a shoebox of some, you know, branding them like a terrorist instead of a believer or whatever. So that's all the work of repeating formulas, wooden language, that is extremely boring to read. And the question of truth that comes the first, whoever does research with secret police, what is the truth? And what is, is it possible to reconstruct truth on the documents that are full with lies? So that was the challenge that we were discussing a lot um, during our workshops. And we write a lot about that. Yeah, I can imagine because, you know, certainly researchers aren't the, the audience for these documents are other police figures, usually the people above whoever's compiling the documents, right? So they're putting it in a kind of language and a kind of narrative that speaks more to the institutional desires rather than, you know, as you said, the truth. How about for you, Anka? What was your experience like? Um, a quick comment on the truth. I mean... <laughs> um when when you enter these archives these are archives that are very different from other states other type of state archives uh, these were not meant to be seen by researchers they were created in such a way with complete freedom if you want from there, there's not going to be a supervision 40, 50 years from now on what on earth we wrote in, in this. So there was freedom in that, in that sense for the creator of the document. Um, but it's also, um, it's a work instrument. Um, so all these compilations that they do, 
it's it's an instrument that they work with. They have to be able to put these guys in jail if they want to put them in jail or um, to um, destroy this community if they want to destroy that community. They have to to prove it. They have to to do this. So a lot of the things uh, that you discover that are just instruments of of work of the of the secret police agent and but on top of these instruments of uh, of the secret police agent is the come uh, is the fact that they behave like collectors they they take everything so when they go into a house search and they pick up everything it's stuck in these files um so they they have these penal files which are completely separate from the documentary files, we call them, in which you have this story and another story and all these elements that they took from the house search and that they don't use in the penal file and um, love letters that they just keep there in order to uh, maybe force someone to, into collaborating. It's religious denominations love is always a big no-no there. <laughs> so when they collect things, they collect it with an idea in their head, but it's also whatever, the, whatever uh, they can get their hands on is, is in that archive. If they use it for, uh, for their penal files, that's one, but most of them remain um, sometimes not used by the, by the secret police. Um, so that's um, it's it's an interesting exercise to see uh, the mind of the of the secret police officer also when he what's considered important and what's not considered important. But it's also a very nice repository of things that you can't find anywhere else, and in some cases not even in the communities themselves. So they don't have access to those things that were taken by the secret police. They don't have access to them. We have access because the secret police collected these things in order to destroy the community and ended up preserving their history. It's a, it's a very nice book if you want. You, you told me not to say uh, names of book, but I can't. I mean, I started from, from this, uh, this one uh, this one amazing book uh written by um wait it it escape it escapes me um it's called castration and the heavenly kingdom uh, a russian fault uh laura engelstein oh she is amazing it <laughs> that that's the idea i mean you're damned if you go into these archives but you you're damned if you don't go into these archives because the stories are there and that's the only place you can find them they're tainted by ideology by the twisted way in which they see it and by the fact that they in fact create this type of um i'm quoting again someone <laughs> that i love very much alison lewis hostile biographies so they create these uh, hostile by, but they they have a very important uh, role. These archives. Yeah, the, this so 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 far we have the arc the the police as an archivist, as a collector, as a, a narrator, um, and so I'm kind of Tatiana. I'm curious 
you know, I, I did an interview a few years ago about this with Polish archives, that the police files are part, they, the people who compose police files are themselves kind of authors of people's lives. I mean, just as you said, they construct these hostile biographies, as you said, Anka. Um, how did they narrate various aspects of religious life uh, in, that you find in these files? Well, that's a kind of there is a polyphony, I would say, in in these archives. And well, first, just maybe to add with the, the just our discussion, like the jewels of sometimes like the truth of the the real lives, like in through this through this boring textual documents, like for example, a letter, whether it was written by a woman who just came in to the police and say and demanded in this letter to arrest her because she said all my family was arrested because they were believers. So I demand you to arrest me as well. I would like to follow them because I believe in God as well. Or another letter that it was attached to a penal file uh, written by a believer who faced 25 years of prison, uh, of prison because he was arrested and he was on trial, but his life, his health condition these 25 years meant the death sentence, basically. And then he writes a letter where he asks for pardon in exchange for being a collaborator and in exchange for giving information. And I knew this name because in the following years he became a kind of infamous witness for the persecution against this, this group of believers and he, was pub he had to publish some uh, pamphlets and articles. And this is kind of this material that that adds a little bit to the, the the dominance of this wooden language. That's there was quite standard and rigid formula, uh, which actually turned an extreme politicization of religion. Because believers, believe it or not, I mean, really, the Soviet Constitution granted religious freedom. You could not be charged because you're a believer. You could not be sent to prison because you believe in God. So there should be always some kind of formula to 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 legitimize this persecution. And that's the formula, of course, was based on this extreme politicization of religion, which had an enormous afterlife effect, an enormous effect on post-Soviet religious landscape, where believers basically were charged as counter-revolutionaries, as in those engaged in espionage as fanatics or even terrorists and these formulas are still very valid like some believers who are generally perceived like a group of religious religious group that has roots from from the US for example is still generally perceived in Russia as okay, you are a spy you are American spies like all the stooges of American imperialism there were some completely awkward uh, formula like ecclesiastic monarchist underground or the ecclesiastic monarchist red dragon type insurgent organization. So all this kind of octopus-like uh, shoeboxes basically into which every believer had to fit in. And sometimes we have no idea what kind of these grassroots religious communities that had just were practicing their they believed in God and they practiced their uh, their religion at home and woods and whatever. They showed up on these pages of as members of this ecclesiastic monarchies, drag, drag, red dragon type organizations, and we have no idea what is this. Sometimes we don't know the the, the real names or identities are not preserved because they were just repressed and disappeared. Particularly all these minority uh, groups that had 
did not have power to write their histories. They did not preserve any historical records. So that was the way to see religion, to see a religious enemy, which had a very strong impact on not only the Soviet period, but I believe in the post-Soviet period as well. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to go a bit later how this is affected after the collapse of communism. Anka, is in Romania, did the secret police target particular religious believers and communities? As opposed to, say, maybe maybe the Catholics, they didn't touch as much, whereas smaller groups, they did? I don't, or was, was everybody fair game? So when we went into these archives, we thought, okay, these secret police archives, the Securitate, this, the, the communist secret police archives, was going to be so different from what happened before. Because, you know, communism, communist regime is against religion. This is this. And what we found, which was, I think, one of our most impressive finds, was that they actually continued the work of the secret police from before. So there's a transition. It's mostly the same people who are the secret police is interested in, the same religious groups. And the idea behind it is who has an external body of leadership? That is something that, is, that they don't like. It doesn't matter if it's the communist secret police or the interwar secret police. That's the, that's the, uh, the thing. Um, that they are interested in. So if you have a hierarchical body outside the country, that means that you're automatically on this blacklist of the secret police and you're going to be uh, that. Uh, you're going to be inside these archives. Um, in theory, during the communist regime, in the secret police archives, you would have the clandestine. So the people, the communities that are deemed illegal in the, in the framework of, of the new um, religious law in the country in 1948. Um, it doesn't state uh, this. This is just an initial, um, an initial thought, but everybody's um, under surveillance. It does, you can be illegal, uh, entity, a legal religious entity and still be under surveillance. It doesn't exclude you from that. The only um, where there's a change is at the level of the Ministry for Religious Denominations. So the Ministry for Religious Denominations, when uh, religious denominations is termed illegal, they no longer deal with it. So they send it to the secret police. But the secret police deals with them all. So what they are mostly interested in is ways in which they um, engage politically against the state. So that means they can be either fascists from, from the pre previous regime. So they, they start uh, following these guys. Um, they uh, are very interested in the Catholics because of the external body that is the Vatican and because the Vatican is... Um, very present in this Cold War um, arena. So that means the, the Catholics are um, surveilled uh, in depth. Um, 
it's um, from the 1960s onwards, it's um, very political is the surveillance of um, evangelicals because of their connection with the Americans. Uh, it, it continues from the interwar, they, they were surveilled in the interwar, it continues in the 1950s, but uh, in the 19, uh, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, they become very political because their center, in the inverted comma, it's not a center, they don't have a center, but they have an ex external body that they relate with uh, because the American fundamentalist communities are turning very political themselves. So that's, that in turn is, uh, makes them, um, puts them on the, on the political list uh, as well, even if they are legal. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Do you, do you find something similar, Tatiana, in Ukraine in terms of this dynamic? Yeah, of course. And just to add that in the Soviet Union, there were always kind of a, league, a list of legal or semi-legal organiza religious organizations and a list of those who were considered to be illegal and depends on the different periods of politics of religion, the lists, both lists were changing. And uh, those who were legal were considered to be religious underground. And there were not always sometimes communities, they were against Soviet Soviet power that ended up in this religious uh, underground. Sometimes there were just com small communities who could not follow all the severe registration rules. But I would say, just to add, that uh, it probably would m have matter these two lists of legal and illegal uh, in the first part of the Soviet period when those illegals are deemed to be eliminated. So they were repressed physically. While from the late 50s, the beginning of Khrushchev era, the beginning of the golden age of the KGB, that was more or less, for the KGB, wasn't very big difference. Well, because the idea was everything was controlled. And the, the, the task of the KGB was control the governing bodies of every single religious organization, be it legal or illegal. And in some cases, like at least two cases known from Ukraine, the idea was the, the, the ultimate task was actually not only to control, but to head them. That if you, if you have time, I can tell one story how the KGB became a head of one uh, religious organization. There's two we know. And that was like, not, like not for one year, for, for decades. Well, why don't, you, why don't you tell that story then? Well, what I discovered that uh, pertained to the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, we also know um, for sure we have documents about Greek, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. But what I, I wrote an article about that, the fascinating research when basically uh, the KGB arrested fully the country committee of uh, Ukrainian Jehovah's Witnesses by the time it was Soviet, the entire Soviet Union Jehovah's Witnesses. They basically arrested them all and they planted an alternative country committee as a cover operation. Basically, all four members of this committee were KGB agents. And basically, they, and they were writing in their reports, like, from now on, the capital organization of Jehovah's Witnesses are not located in the U.S., but on Vladimirskaya 33, Street 33 in Kiev, which is actually the headquarters of the KGB. So for several years, KGB was the capital organization of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And that was like 50s. Then we know until up to the late 70s that at least one or two 
members of country committee of Jehovah's Witnesses who are KGB agents. The same happened with uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholics and I would say the same. The same happens with Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church because Russian Patriarch Alexei II is known as Agent Drozdov on the pages of uh, KGB documentation. So, Right. And in this case of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is just incredibly fascinating, do you have any sense that these KGB guys were also believers? Did they, did they fall into belief? Or were they able to separate themselves they were, somehow? They were recruited from within. So they were ah. three out of four were actually active members of Jehovah's Society. They were blackmailed. They were arrested. They were broken. Only one out of four actually was infiltrated, but he was an active Pentecostal believer. So, of course, they were playing. They were they were playing <laughs> soft. <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, Anka, what about gender? Because in in the conversation I had with Catherine Warner in our first event, we talked about how in these underground religious movements, women take uh, a more of more space in some of these religions that are tend to be more patriarchal. Uh, what are some of the gender dynamics that stand out through these files? So let's start uh, talking about gender and their, its representation in archives. So gender in religious community, in other archives than the secret police archive, um, are not that present. So the Ministry for Religious Denomination, there are very little traces of women in those archives. Um, so are with the National Archives collecting from other ministries and. Um, their focus is on the leadership of the church, and the leadership is usually um, male-dominated uh, leadership. Now, when you go into the secret police archives, you get into these um, uh, private life stories, and that's where women pop up. And, and then you suddenly are surrounded by women. But what is fascinating is, these guys from the secret police have a bias in the beginning. They say, oh, women are not as dangerous as men. We need to surveil men. If we cut the head, the rest of the group will fall. Um, so for a few years, for instance, they surveilled this. Uh, they had this uh, operation that it was called the Vatican spies. And uh, this operation was centered on these uh, um, bishops, uh, these Catholic bishops, and they were trying very much to make their case, but they couldn't understand how were these guys talking to each other. We've arrested one, uh, he's in a, in a forced domicile in one place, and the other is in a forced domicile in the other place, and how on earth are these two guys talking to each other? And it's the women. And when they figure out it's the women, they arrested the whole network. It, it was two guys and the rest were seven, eight women that were doing the whole administration of this spying operation. They were actually um, looking into these communities that were left without priests and they, uh, where priests were, uh, un went underground and they needed financing. And these, these women were parts of the of the church but not um part of 
you know, like they were not clergy, <laughs> they couldn't be clergy. And in some cases, there were the women that cleaned the house of the, of the priest and sold the candles in the church or uh, played in the choir and, um, and all these women. And because they were biased, it took them until from, from 48 to 1952 to be able to um, decapitate this organization that was dealing with um, this dialogue between the Vatican and the Catholics in, uh, in Romania. So it's, it's this, that bias actually hurt the secret police um, and it's also our own bias because we don't think very much at, uh, about women when we think about uh, about religion. We mostly think about male-dominated hierarchies. But what do you do when your entire hierarchy is arrested? Most of the clergy is put in prison and all these communities are menless, let's say. Uh, all the men are in prison. What do you do with it? And um, it's... Um, it's that space that is created for women to uh, become much more involved into the life of the religious community, uh, into its survival. And that's where you start seeing um, women taking up roles. Um, they, um, there is a period of increasing uh, of their role in, within the church. And then there is a period of decreasing when the state allows the men to return. The men want to occupy that space that they left and um, surprise their women there. <laughs> and sometimes they want to give the space back to the men and sometimes they don't. And there are very interesting um, dialogues between the male and um, the men and the women inside these uh, religious communities after, let's say, the mid 1960s when. Um, the political prisoners return from, from jail. Do you have anything to add to that, Tatiana, in terms of uh, the gender dynamics? Yeah, just a, one story that probably talk about a little bit different dimension of this, a possible, it's not, I would argue, it's like 100%, but just something like to ruminate. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses by now do not have uh, women, uh, do not allow women to take any leadership roles. But they did before in the first part of uh, the 20th century. When that same cover operation was successful and the, the country committee of Chicago Witnesses were comprised of KGB, KGB agents, one of the first decree they issued, no women allowed in leadership roles. And the KGB were basically, the re that was the main agent who pushed this, this politics excluding women from from leadership role and that would be i just wonder what was the role of the kgb in influencing these power male dominated power structures in other religious communities because we are talking about for example ukrainian protestantism as kind of pat very patriarchal and in general religious life in post in in the soviet union a kind of patriarchal oriented the the, the the, in the Orthodox Church, the institution of deaconies is in vanishing, so the leadership role of women kind of more and more uh, less visible. 
And just the question, what was the, was it any role of the KGB in that? Because they were just really targeting women in leadership role were not allowed, regardless of all this Soviet type of feminism. In general, on the daily ground, uh, it was a very patriarchal society and women's role were, should be limited within the family and, um, and, 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 and motherhood. And we are talking about the KGB that comprised fully of men. <laughs> um, I just have a few more questions for for Anka and Tatiana. So if you have any questions, those of you listening, uh, please, you know, don't hesitate to put them in the chat. Um, Tatiana, I, you know, you met, we mentioned a little while ago in the beginning about the material objects that you find in these archives. And I know that you've written specifically about photographs. Um, what Talk about the, the, the photograph in the archive and what kind of source does it give you when you see these photographs? Photographs are shiny things in the archive and they really opens because that's something not written and it's very difficult to edit. Although I had a story with even photographs trying being, being edited. There are different types of photographs that you can find in the archive. Can, photographs produced by KGB officers like surveillance photographs, like crime scene photographs. One of the amazing uh, series of photographs I found regarding the crime scene. There was in, from 1945 from Kharkiv. Uh, they when the police actually found, raided the underground monastery, a really underground and real monastery, and they were taking pictures, like some 17 pictures of this underground monastery that they destroyed afterwards. And there was no other traces but these photographs of how it was functioning. But probably the most amazing story, like something very emotionally uh, disturbing up to, uh, I found in one uh, one uh, penal file of against a group of believers from the Kiev region. All of them were illiterate believer, illiterate peasants. Most of them, yeah, could not read or write. I we didn't know, even know who they were because they they basically did not say a word during the trial, pre-trial investigation. They were sinning, praying, not a single word. Uh, they went to, on hunger strike, and some five people died uh, before the, co the, 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 the court sentence. But what, other than that, we would know anything at all about what actually happened, except their arrest photographs. There was, they were photographed for as a, for as arrest uh, for their arrest forms, but the photographs were completely unusual because they were resisting. We could see that they were closing their eyes, turning their heads from the camera. Uh, they were the grimaces on their face were telling that they were either sinning or crying or yelling. Something was going on there. But what was the, what uh, struck me was something on the bottom of the photographs were carefully scratched. Something was wiped out from shaded. What is there? What was there? And I was lucky enough that. The 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 archivist or the KGB officer who created this 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 file, he included a little envelope in which he put in original photographs, and we could see what exactly they were shading, what the what exactly they were trying to remove. That was actually doctored photographs, and the original showed the hands of policemen who were just strangling uh, these believers, and they were trying to restrain them. So they were removing this violence again from the photograph. And this just shades, this doctor photographs tells more than anything on those 
interrogation protocols could could tell. And there were plenty of photographs, doctored photographs or photo collages that they were using in a quite artistic way sometimes to to this to to create this visualize this idea of of religion as enemy. But sometimes this the truth leaks, the story leaks and that's the those priceless moments when you see something behind this. Right. Anka, do you have anything to add in terms of other material objects that, that stand out to you? Um, I liked very much the fact that they were very diligent in taking over correspondence. So, uh, and making it in such a way that people don't know that their correspondence was copied and then because they wanted the answer so it was a dialogue you send a letter you expect someone to send an answer back so uh, you have communities and we found this uh, sending letters saying we did not receive that letter that uh, was supposed to come some is something the matter what, what is the matter and then the secret police goes in to investigate why didn't they get the letter because well, something happened in the way what's what's wrong we we need these to get to the final destination and um the thing is the post the postwoman the postman when when they open for the secret police the letter for them to copy it uh they spilled some ink on it and they could not I mean, how can we send this is, is with ink? So you have also the inked letter inside the, uh, the file. So you can, you can actually see uh, how this is done. By, um, it, it, it doesn't take much for this community to understand that their letter are surveilled. And you have inside the letter a small paragraph for the secret police officer and the letter is not even uh, sealed when it's sent because it's easier for you guys to just open it and look through it. It's a dialogue, not just between these two uh, people that write to each other, but it's also a dialogue with the secret police officer who definitely reads uh, this correspondence. So for me, that was um, one of the most uh, interesting... Uh, we think it's funny now, but it's not. I mean, it was violating so many aspects of private life uh, and, and how correspondence should work in a normal um, state, in a, what is normal, but how correspondence should work, it was completely different. But I, I mean, I, I valued the fact that the, the secret police officer wanted these guys to get their, um, their correspondence. So it's not just removing, it's also allowing them to access to the information. Uh, here's a, a question uh, from the Q&A, uh, back to this issue of, of narrating the religious enemy. Was there a gender distinction in the types of narration, especially once, once say, they discovered that women are indeed, you know, deserve to be watched, surveilled, and arrested, did they portray them differently? Either of you can answer this. Um, there, uh, there is a difference. Um, 
it's it's also a structural difference i mean inside the the denominations their role is further down so it's not the top guy in the secret police that is dealing with the women is like the lower ranks and uh sometimes it's peasant women so it's a it's a, also a class distinction so it, you have educated hierarchy and then peasant women who baptize their children or um marry um someone in in um secret religious uh ceremonies or go to um so it, it's it's just it's also um a class distinction um there's also um an issue on theology you wouldn't look at theological things when you surveil women so you don't need to put experts to to deal with these cases because it seems for them that they are um i don't know theologically poor it it only seems because there are cases uh a lot of cases where you have these women that are very engaged in teaching um religious precepts and and engaging in theological uh learning so it's it's just a, an imp- but it's um it's a bias that it keeps coming uh, into um but for women um i think the the it's our tendency to go and see uh, Syrian police is the bad guy and these religious communities are the oppressed little guys sometimes it's underground it's illegality it's secrecy and bad things happen there and i mean uh, a lot of uh, issues of um uh, sexual uh, promiscuity and and also um vi- sexual violence happen in the underground because it's in in itself it's not in 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 the public it's it's hidden it's secret so a lot of things a lot of bad things happen um but what we've noticed uh, i what i've noticed was that the secret police is that is not there to correct or to punish this they are there to use this bad thing that is happening and to enforce a collaboration based on it or to create a smear attack on on that person was that they have knowledge but their knowledge is not to protect the person that was violated in any way sometimes it it, it does end up in in a in punishment but not most of in most of the cases it's it's not punished the act is not it's used to as coercive uh material is that Tatiana, do you, any anything to add to that? Uh, just small comment. Uh, I think that was different disciplinary mechanism applied for uh, against women and men, while women in majority received less uh, terms. Uh, not because they were pitted, basically, but because they were they were not 
I mean, they they were they were not appreciated as basically as religious actors, as important leaders, but at the same time they were uh, because of that because the idea of women confined to family and motherhood, the the disciplinary mechanism basically was organizing public public trials and taking custody of their children. That was basically how they were trying to hit more, and yeah, I think that's just a small comment on that. Um, and finally, um, about its legacies. I mean, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are a good example of a group that was persecuted in Imperial Russia, Soviet Russia, and in post-Soviet Russia. Um, what are the what are the legacies of this surveillance and repression on religious believers in in under state socialism, Tatiana? I would probably start because I have a very optimistic, a very pessimistic uh, opinion. Maybe sure. Anka, you will end up with something oh. more positive. <laughs> I don't want to end. <laughs> I don't want to finish okay. with this. But, okay. but from my both experience working with uh, religious minorities community in uh, in the Arctic, in the Russian Arctic, and in Ukraine, in both cases, during interviews with religious um, leaders, they. In both cases, they said the Soviet Union did not stop to exist for us. And they were reporting the surveillance practices, the politics of control, sometimes even blackmail of religious communities, in, particularly in post-Soviet Russia, which I believe that it partly explains why uh, only this tiny example of minority religious, why, why Russia nowadays so easily slipped into dictatorship, because they were the Soviets practices of surveillance and control never stopped. They were more hidden or less discussed, but the, this kind of the idea of some de of democracy it was just an idea, but never, never in practice. Unfortunately, the same thing I, I heard even from, from, Ukra from Ukrainian believers, that they were telling, but particularly from the periphery, they were complaining that there still there is some form of control in this form form of surveillance, which I believe due to the lack of lustration practices uh, in post-Soviet Ukrainian, because I know there are many, not many, I wouldn't say many, but I know former KGB agents and collaborators who occupy state position in, in position in state institutions, including those responsible for communication with religious organizations nowadays. And the reaction to this, just one little story, when I went to a no-name town, I will never, I will have to, I mean, anonymize it, and I had a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper was an old, old person uh, who had a kind of very big authority in this, uh, in the kind of state religious uh, uh, cooperation in that town. And he introduced me to certain religious communities. And he basically entered, for example, uh, we went to a Baptist church and there was like, he introduced me and said, okay, this scholar from Ireland would ask you questions and you answer. And then I just realized there's something going on because the answer were given not to me, the answer were given to this guy. And the answer was like, are we still in the Soviet Union? Because it was like formal, like everything is fine. We live in democracy, everything is this. But once I opened, I closed the door in three cases out of five interviews, I've got a phone call from that same person who I interviewed and say, could you please come back, but without this person? You have to understand we couldn't answer what you were asking. And that was like, yes, that's 
that's something that is still going on in many uh, in many tiny post-Soviet towns that still remained not Ukrainian, not Russian, but post-Soviet in this regard. Uh, Anka, how about in Romania? What are the legacies of this? I have to be optimistic. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you don't, I mean, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> no. Um, so I'm, I'm going to concentrate on the use of the archives um, because I think um, we started with the archives. And, and so um, it was in, in the early 90s uh, up to the 2000s, now it's still happening but that was a period when it it was mostly done there was a competition on martyrdom so being anti-communist was something in the 1990s and you have to prove yourself to be an anti-communist and each of these community communities were um challenging the others with how they resisted and how anti-communist they were and uh on on these uh, idea of uh, we had more martyrs and uh, than you had, and that was until they went into these archives because the idea of martyrdom is all well and fine until you find out what the secret police did to your community and who in that community was collaborating with the secret police, and and that was a shock and. There are evangelical communities that started their process of lustration, their own process of lustration. Nobody asked for that uh, in, in their religious communities, but they started it anyway. And at, the, at one point, there is one person from within, these uh, from within one of these communities that said, we have to stop because if we don't stop, we'll, we'll, we'll suddenly will become memberless because everybody was in one way or another collaborating with us. That's an exaggeration, but still the level in which the secret police got to these people, to these community, it's uh, impressive. So, it, so it, it, it started with competitions of martyrdom and ended up in defending yourself from the narrative of the secret police. And then you have several ways in which you start defending yourself from the secret police. And one is to just disregard it altogether, which is basically what the Romanian Orthodox Church, the majority church in Romania does. Um, there's another way in which to pick and choose. You choose what you like from these archives and what you dislike, you just push aside. Uh, or there is uh, the idea that uh, these narratives were created to destroy us, so uh, they are pointless. We should not read anything as if this is uh, anyway meant uh, to destroy us, so don't let's not uh, use these archives, which is, in my opinion, one of the ways of behaving that is more damaging than the other, because there are things in those archives that these community would would much like to have, but they can't because they disengage completely from, from the archive. So that's uh, about the archives. Um, religious freedom. Now it's very difficult to preach religious freedom to communities that were under surveillance for a century. 
that lived in the underground for a century. So you have these communities that still, even if they are completely legal, still live like they are not legal, still uh, find the state as the arch enemy and uh, behave, they enclose themselves, they, they ghettoize in, in, uh, in, some, in some way or another. And I think uh, the pandemic period was a, a period of time when we saw more and more these, of these communities that were illegal, clandestine in, these, in, in this period before 89 that started to behave like they did uh, before 1989. That was Anka Sinkan and Tatiana Vagramenko. Anka Shinkan is a researcher at the Georgi Shinkai Institute for Social Sciences and Humanities at the Romanian Academy of Sciences. And she was a postdoctoral researcher on the project Religious Minorities, Hidden Galleries in the Secret Police Archives in Central and Eastern Europe, which was based at the University of College Cork. And she's currently participating in a research project called Negotiating Sovereignty, Challenges of Secularism and Nation Building in Central Eastern Europe since eight, since 1780 at the Research for Humanities in Budapest, Hungary. Tatiana Vagramenka is a social anthropologist and religious studies scholar. She's the principal investigator on the project History Declassified, the KGB and the Religious Underground in Soviet Ukraine at the University College Cork. This project is the first in-depth study using secret police records and the state persecution of religious minorities in Ukraine and the Soviet Union. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the Eurasian Knot. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian East European Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. And I can't stress strongly enough the importance of you becoming a patron of this podcast to help us keep it ad-free keep up our archive of, I think, almost 400 interviews now, and to pay our staff, Dasha and Rusana, for the hard work they do. So please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash you're not. And uh, if you don't have the means to become a patron, you could always help out by spreading the word about the podcast. This is a big help. Write reviews on iTunes, share it on social media. This is a great thing to do for us as well if you can't afford to chip in some money every month. So, until next time, bye!